Don't look now, but there's something funny going on over there at the bank, George. I've never really seen one, but that's got all the earmarks of being a run. Get your money! Those thieving bankers are gonna steal everything! Has your kids, has your wife, and has your husband because they raped the name out here. Hey, lady, you got any money in the bank? You better hurry! You're damn right. See, I told you, Ernie, I told you these lizard people are gonna take everything from us. Well, hello, everybody. Miss Thompson, how are you? Arlene, what's the matter here? Can't you get in? Enough small talk, George. Just give us our money. a bird in the bank. What are you guys doing here, making TikTok videos like nurses or something? Now, uh, just remember that this thing isn't as black as it appeared. I have some news for you, folks. I was just talking to old man Potter, and he's guaranteed cash payments to the bank. The bank's going to reopen next week. Next week? What are you, high? You better give me my money. You're thinking of this place all wrong, as if I had the money back in a safe. The money's not here. Not here? What do you mean it's not here? Come on, Boogie, let's burn this motherfucker down! Burn it down, Pookie. <laughs> Welcome back to Everything Allegedly. My name is Sean, and everything that I say is 100% true. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> and today, we are going to talk about banking and finance and money. And uh, we don't have to burn anything down. So please, don't burn anything down. <laughs> don't commit any arson. Because we don't have to. We don't have to because the money and banking, it's going to burn itself down. We don't have to intervene in any way, but we have to do it. We have to talk about a current issue that's going on right now because this is the most important story in the news right now, or at least it should be in the news. And uh, <laughs> you can find it if you're looking for it, but for the most part, you're not really going to see uh, this described accurately because they don't want to start a panic. Uh, <laughs> the banks don't want you freaking out. And this episode is not meant to freak you out. <laughs> Just be informative. But um, but we got to do it. We got to talk about money. We got to talk about banking because the banks, they are a collapsing, folks. And uh, speaking of, uh, of panic... I think we should open this podcast with a quote from Henry Ford, a guy who knew a lot about money and banking. And uh, here's the quote from Henry Ford. He said, quote, it is perhaps well enough that the people of the nation do not know or understand our banking and monetary system. For if they did, I believe there would be a revolution before morning. All right. Well, 
He knew that the people didn't understand money and banking, and if they did, they wouldn't stand for it. So I'm not sure that we have enough listeners here to start a revolution, but we can certainly try. (laughs) We can certainly try. And um, I'm going to try to keep this as brief as I can and informative as I can without all the uh, statistics and whatnot, because I'm kind of like kind of like Mick Jagger on this topic. If you start me up, I never stop. <laughs> Just ask my my poor wife about it <laughs> because it seems like every time our heads hit the pillow, I'm like, babe, do you know what these lizard people are up to now? <laughs> so again, I'll try and keep it short. I know I say this every time, but I made sure that the notes that I do have are very short. So we'll see what happens. Anyway, if you were to put into the Google machine and you were to, to try to figure out for yourself, uh, why are the banks collapsing? In fact, that's exactly what I put into Google. <clears throat> and the summary section at the top returned a, uh, a result that, uh, according to the New York Times, the reason for these banking failures for the collapses is because of undercapitalization. <laughs> that's that's what they say under capitalization that is interesting right that's uh that's certainly a way to put it uh what does under capitalization mean well what is the business model of a bank exactly uh it should be to keep the capital <laughs> a bank is where you keep the capital so if they are undercapitalized well that's pretty concerning we should we should dig into this further <laughs> So why are they undercapitalized? Well, you might think that a bank is there uh, to do what what it does for you. Uh, you may think that a bank takes your money and uh, puts it in one of those uh, little zippy bags uh, or, or a cart, I guess, if it puts it on the cart if you're really rich. And uh, they, they wheel it back into the vault where they store your money for you. And then when you need that money, you come back to the bank and they give it to you. You might think that the banks are there for processing your checks and uh, safeguarding your money. But that is not the point of the banks. That is not why they exist. They're not there to serve you. (laughs) Definitely not. Uh, So because that's not what happens, what really happens? What what is the the function of the banks that, uh, that you and I use? Well, what they do uh, with that money, and, and these days they, they're, they're not even really taking physical bills or anything into the vault um, because they don't have vaults. Have you noticed that the new banks that uh, pop up these days, where's the vault? There's no vault in there. <laughs> that's, that's because there's nothing to put in the vault anymore. It's all digital. It all exists on uh, you know some digital ledger somewhere. It's all ones and zeros in their computer system. But they used to have vaults. Banks used to have vaults. In fact, you can still go, if you go to the Apple store on the Upper East Side of of Manhattan, I think it's on Madison and I'm going to say 70th, there's an Apple store there. And if you go downstairs to use the bathroom, you'll see it. It's this giant vault door uh, because the building was a bank at one time. It's right next to the restrooms downstairs. It's the size of a garage door. It's crazy. It's so cool to look at. And um, at one time, they had to actually protect uh, real assets. They probably had gold and silver and bills and coins and all kinds of stuff in there. 
But like I said, that's not the way it is anymore. It just exists on some digital ledger. So there's no reason to have a vault or at least not like they used to. So what do they do with your money when you uh, deposit it these days? Well, uh, it just exists on their ledger. It's uh, nothing really happens with it. It just kind of hangs out there, except, except um, banks have this thing called fractional reserve. And that's really what we got to talk about with these banks. That's the important part about what these banks do. What does fractional reserve mean? Well, it's right there in the in the name. The, the reserves that they keep of your money when you deposit it are fractional. And this fraction has changed throughout time and um, usually governed by some <laughs> some government body. So, you know, we're good. <laughs> But anyway, I think it was uh, I think it was in the neighborhood of 50 or something percent at one time and then 30 and 20 and 10 and five and two. And then just recently, you know, because because things accelerate quickly, just recently, that fractional reserve requirement is effectively zero. Now it's basically zero. Yeah, they have to have some money in the drawers because when you come in there and you say, yeah, I need a couple hundred bucks or whatever, they got to give you a few bills. But in the grand scheme of things, the reserves that these banks actually keep on hand is about zero. How does how does the money that um, the banks have? So so they take your money and they and they distribute it out. They distribute it out to their um, other investments, other ways that they can uh, create money for themselves. Because like I said, the banks aren't there to serve you. The banks are there as a profit making entity. But these banks have another way of making money because how a bank and especially a commercial bank makes money is they literally make money. So when you take out, uh, say, a loan from a bank like a mortgage, you might think also that they are taking that cart uh, back into the vault where they load it up with cash and then deliver that to the seller of the home. But that's not actually what happens either. In fact, if you take out a loan from a bank, they're not even taking money from other people's accounts anymore. What they're doing is they are creating that money. In fact, they just add it to their ledger. And so that's what they do. Instead of taking it from the quote unquote reserves that they hold, money is just created by these commercial banks. In fact, it's part of a, uh, a scam really that the banks are running. And, and one of these scams, uh, that, that really went down in a big way during the 08 collapse is called loan to own. And this was something that the banks were well aware of. And what they did was they loaned out this essentially fake money that they just created to give people loans on homes. And when those people defaulted, when they foreclosed, they actually took the home from them. They foreclosed. They took it back. So they lent out fake money and they took back a real tangible asset. Not a bad gig if you're a bank, right? Not a bad gig. So, so what's, what's happening right now? What is, uh, what is causing these banks to collapse? Because it seems like it would be pretty easy for them to stay in the money, to stay solvent. If you can just create money, well, then, then there's no way to be undercapitalized, right? Well, yeah, you would think, 
but uh, there, there, it is a pretty complicated parlor trick that they're running. So in 08, in 2008, the reason that the banks were collapsing and um, fun fact, I actually had a bank account with one of the banks or the biggest bank to ever collapse. That was Washington Mutual. I had an account with them, but you know, at the time I was, uh, <laughs> I was uh, doing drugs. So there probably wasn't any money in it, but I do remember having a bank account there at the time. So anyway, what happened in, in um, 2007, 2008 was that the bank's owned a lot of money worth of mortgage-backed securities. And during the mortgage crisis, when people weren't paying their loans, that's how the banks became undercapitalized. And since nobody was taking out new loans, there was new, no new money being created. So what's happening now? Well, now I believe uh, it's, it's similar. It's similar, but uh, just with uh, some different circumstances. So we'll start with the first one, which is Silicon Valley Bank. That was just a couple months ago. Silicon Valley Bank collapsed, and it was the second largest bank collapse um, in history (laughs) at that time. (laughs) I think there will be more in the future to break the record, but um, at the time when it failed, it was the second largest right underneath Washington Mutual. And so what did they do? What did they do to find themselves in that position. Well, I might argue that the way they found themselves into that position was a deliberate one, that they did this on purpose. But on paper, here's what actually happened. So Silicon Valley Bank had a giant influx of money because they're in Silicon Valley, lots of capital there. So they had uh, they had an overcapitalization, you might call it. And they had 80 billion dollars worth of capital. And because they're a bank and because their job is to not safeguard your funds, <laughs> uh, because they were uh, reinvesting this money, they had some choices to make. They they could uh, put this in some kind of uh, investment product that would gain them a return. The problem was they chose a very bad one. <laughs> so what they did with that $80 billion was they bought $80 billion of mortgage-backed securities. <laughs> You'd think, hey, uh, 10 years ago, the same thing happened. Maybe we shouldn't, uh, maybe we shouldn't be buying mortgage-backed securities, but they did. And um, the reason it was a really stupid choice is because the return they got on that $80 billion worth of mortgage-backed securities, or MBSs as they're called in the industry, the return they got was 1.5%. Ooh, 1.5%. Wow. Um, and and the problem with it is it's tied up for 10 years. The reason it's really stupid and not just regular stupid is because at that time, treasury bonds were paying 1%. So they only got a half a percent more for buying mortgage-backed securities, which, like I said, just just years before completely collapsed the banking industry. So they tied up $80 billion for an extra, for an extra half a percent because the uh, treasury bonds they could get out of at any time. So they tied their money up for 10 years rather than treasury bonds, which gave a slightly lower interest rate. And the reason these things were paying such lower interest rates is because the fed rate was so low at that time. So there weren't a lot of options other than, um, you know, using them to create your own mortgages or something, but money was cheap. 
Money was really cheap at the time. And so if you listen to, say, conservative commenters or any of these news pundits, usually the reason they're going to say is, oh, we got drunk on cheap money. And because of all this cheap money, we, um, you know, we're making bad decisions. And, and really the way to fix this is to have higher interest rates. Well, uh, we're, we're getting higher interest rates, and that is exactly the problem. So when the Fed decided to start raising rates, they uh, started ticking them up in essentially quarter point increments. And at that very moment, Silicon Valley banks should have realized the pickle that they were in, which again leads me to believe that this was a deliberate thing, because they should have realized that as the Fed is raising rates, they are sitting on a giant liability. Now, with banking, liabilities and assets are considered different, so don't get caught up in that. But what they should have realized is they're sitting on a time bomb. They're sitting on this time bomb of $80 billion that's not worth the market rate anymore. So they could have sold it off at a discount and uh, taken, you know, taken a haircut on it, and uh, that would have probably staved off their collapse but, but they didn't do that. They just let it ride. They let it ride all the way through until the point where the bank collapsed. And how did it collapse? Well, when money gets expensive, the, uh, the, the people who had their, their money in Silicon Valley Bank, they decided, well, instead of taking loans to capitalize my business at a very low rate, I'm just going to use my capital. Because before, when rates were really low, it made sense to use borrowed money to run your business because it was very cheap. But then rates go up and now it's five, six, seven, eight percent to take these loans. Now it's not such a good deal. And you're going to use your capital instead and not pay interest on it. Well, when those people came to the bank to get their money, Silicon Valley Bank started running out of money because people wanted their money and they couldn't make new loans to create money. So they found themselves insolvent or undercapitalized, <laughs> according to the New York Times. So there you go. You can't create new money if nobody wants it. So the Fed could have stopped this. The Fed could have seen that a contagion event was happening or the dominoes were starting to fall. And the Fed could have said, all right, we're going to lower rates again. You all can get your ducks in a row. You all can prepare for this. And then we're going to come back in the future and uh, raise these rates again. But the Fed didn't do that. So again, again, it makes me think that this is a deliberate attempt. And what are they attempting to do? They're attempting to get us all into a couple of banks. They're attempting to get us all to bank with maybe two, three, four banks that have all the control, like the media, like the media. There's only, I think there's only six media companies in total now. So that's why you see all these videos of newscasters saying the exact same thing, because they're getting a script from the top. And uh, they want to do the same thing with the banks. They want us all to bank with the same few banks and to fall in line. And eventually the plan is to give us CBDCs or central bank digital currencies. So instead of the dollars that we have now, they want to use a digital currency. And they want to make sure that the banks that will play ball are right there with them. So 
you know, this is your JP Morgan chases and whatnot, the ones who are deeply embedded with the Fed already. So the good thing about cash, as we have it now, these paper bills, if I have $100 in my pocket, for one, they don't know I have it. For two, I can do whatever I want with it. And um, it's totally anonymous. Now, the problem with a central bank digital currency is it's controlled. So if that money is is uh, completely digital and uh, controlled from a central database. Well, now, now let's say my carbon footprint is too high for the month. So maybe my money won't work to buy another steak. Maybe I've been a bad boy and I've eaten too much meat. Or, um, you know, maybe uh, it only works to buy cricket burgers. Maybe all I'm allowed to eat is the bugs. Or maybe... Maybe if they see another financial crisis coming and they say, we've got to do something about this. Well, maybe my money expires. Maybe I have to spend my tax return within 30 days. I don't know. There's just all scenarios that could come up. And so I'll probably do an entire episode about CBDCs, but I think that's really the goal. One of the other suspect reasons for me thinking that this banking collapse is planned is because at Silicon Valley Bank, there was a gentleman there called Joseph Gentile. And um, his job at uh, Silicon Valley Bank was the chief administrative officer. That's a pretty high position. (laughs) Joseph had a pretty good gig there. The problem was, the problem was he was also the chief financial officer of Lehman Brothers, (laughs) which was the first bank to collapse in the 07, 08 crisis. So, so, uh, so this guy essentially was at the very tip of the last collapse and he just happened to be an executive at this new collapse as if this guy didn't have an intimate knowledge of what happened last time. <clears throat> anyway, I think the failure was, uh, was absolutely planned and not just because of my conspiracy theory that they're trying to funnel us into a couple of banks, but because bank failure, or I should say big business failure, it's a business strategy. Now it is, it is part of a, uh, of a business plan essentially since I believe it was 1979, the first time that Chrysler was, uh, like a bailout happened. Chrysler got bailed out by uh, Congress and I believe 1979. And this really set a precedent, set a precedent to get you in the position where you're too big to fail. And then you can make whatever risky business decisions, whatever high risk business decisions you want, because the government is going to bail you out. And so we've seen this time and time again now, these uh, companies grow to a certain point and they don't have to worry. They don't have to worry about misinvesting all of your money. They don't have to worry about making stupid business decisions. They can go out there really and do whatever they want because in the end, we the taxpayers are going to bail them out. We're going to uh, prevent their failure because uh, because after all, what we have are privatized gains and socialized losses because when we bail out these companies i never received a stock certificate i never received my shares of any of these companies no we pay with our taxes and then we get nothing back 
However, when these banks continue to operate, the CEOs of these banks and these big businesses, well, they keep taking home millions and hundreds of millions of dollars. The executives get all their bonuses. They keep getting paid. They keep getting to continue on uh, just exactly as they were before while we pay the bills. So again, this is a business strategy. This is how it works in banking. But let's let's go a little higher up the food chain. Let's go uh, one step further up and talk about money. What is our money? Where does it come from? And um, sort of how Congress uses it. And there's a really good example that I found. I'm going to play a clip for you. This is from CNN uh, Business. And uh, this is Christine Romans, who is a CNN chief business correspondent. She's a chief business correspondent. So, you know, it's good, right? Because, you know, CNN's always giving you the, the, <laughs> the straight news. So anyway, here is Christine Romans uh, about uh, money and debt. Every day, the U.S. draws closer to the so-called X date when it runs out of money to pay all the bills. The debt ceiling of $31.4 trillion was hit January 19th. Unable to borrow more money, the Treasury Department is using so-called extraordinary measures, moving money around, delaying some investments to make sure everything is paid. And sometime soon, as quickly as early June, the accounting tricks run out and the U.S. risks defaulting on its obligations. Now, assuming interest payments get top priority, every family would face cuts. Social security payments could be delayed. Veterans could receive an IOU instead of benefits. Federal employees could be furloughed. And it would be catastrophic for financial markets, where the creditworthiness of the United States is the cornerstone of the global financial system. A default on the debt would trigger market crashes that would crush business and consumer confidence that could further shock the financial system and throw the economy into a recession. Treasuries could tank, interest rates spike, the dollar sink, and global economies reel. That is the reality Congress is sleepwalking toward, unless it raises the debt ceiling. Now, Congress has raised the limit 78 times since 1960, 49 times under Republican presidents, 29 times under Democrats. But in recent years, it has become a political football in a game where the American people are the losing team. All right. Well, indeed, Ms. Romans, we are on the losing team. (laughs) That's right. We definitely are on the losing team. She's right about that. But what uh, what exactly was she presenting there? Real novel solution to the problem, right? So we've done it 78 times before, but this time, this time it's going to work. But you know, I can't I can't help being a little excited by her uh, <laughs> by her description there. The the cataclysm that she describes just kind of gets me hot and bothered. The way she describes the government shutting down is. It's kind of like romance novel erotica to me. <laughs> oh, Christine, please stop. Don't don't tell me the government's going to shut down. <laughs> but anyway, what is she what is she saying? Um, she she is basically making the argument that this this thing we've done 78 times before by raising the debt ceiling, this thing we've done 78 times before to get us into the pickle that we're in now. Well, we should just do it again. 
We've got to do it again because why, if we don't do it again, then things could get really bad. <laughs> oh, right. What, what's the, it's the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Yeah, I guess it's true in this case. It is true in this case. And we truly are <laughs> on the losing team. And think about it. Think, think about the solution that she has presented. We've got to do this thing or else it's going to get really bad. Well, I run a business to some degree. And um, let's just say my business was doing very bad. We were uh, not really making any sales. Uh, we were losing a lot of our sales to competitors. We just weren't bringing money in. And uh, got to do something about that. Well, maybe I could take out a giant loan and hire an ungodly amount of people. And maybe that would work. Maybe I need to uh, really capitalize my business, see if I can get it, uh, get it chugging along again. Yeah, that might work. That might work. Uh, maybe it works uh, the first time or maybe it doesn't. But, uh, but what about after 78 times? <laughs> you think I should keep trying it? You think the 79th time is going to work? You think I should take out another giant loan? Because this time... This time it's going to work, baby, and we're going to be in the money. <laughs> I can feel it. <laughs> this time it's going to work. But uh, but but what I've described, as crazy as that is, as crazy as the scenario I've just laid out for my business, well, that's what we do as a country. And this is called modern monetary theory. And uh, what modern monetary theory says is the debt doesn't really matter. The debt, uh, you can take out as much debt as you want. It doesn't really matter. And uh, the reason it doesn't matter is because it's a giant scam. <laughs> but they call it modern monetary theory. They don't call it giant scam. Now, the reason this scam could work for so long, the reason modern, monetar modern monetary theory did work, and the reason we were able to keep it going for so long, is because the dollar, our money system, was the primary money being used around the world. And so if you bought oil... You had to do it in dollars because of the uh, the OPEC agreements and the uh, petrodollar. And so we had a monopoly on money, quite literally. But something changed. Uh, and, and that event, that event that changed our monopoly on money, or I should say it's more like the straw that broke the camel's back. When this, you know, quote unquote war broke out with Russia, Again, the uh, the the unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, please. Anyway, the uh, when this war broke out, what we did was we cut Russia off from the SWIFT banking system. Now, the SWIFT banking system was a system used for doing international transactions across uh, large uh, and central banks. And so when we cut Russia off of that system and seize their assets, they realize they've got to do something different. They realize that it is uh, time to get out of this system because at the end of the day, we can just pull the plug on anyone we want. And so that's what we did. And um, other countries have decided that that's a little too much risk for them to be involved in. And other countries are realizing that the short-term pain of getting out of the dollar is probably going to pay uh, dividends in the end because, because what is our money? Or I should first say the way they're doing this is BRICS. And I've mentioned it before. BRICS is an ac acronym for uh, Brazil, Russia, 
India, China, and uh, South Africa. And so those were the original BRICS agreement nations. They're going to set up their own money system and uh, supposedly going to be backed by uh, gold, silver, and commodities. Uh, last time I checked, I think there's about a hundred nations now that are willing to sign on to it. Ugh. <laughs> uh, that's not going very well. So, um, so yeah, so if that happens, uh, the need for dollars is not exactly going to be there. And this giant inflated money supply that we have of dollars will kind of come rushing back. So when I say dollars, what are those dollars? What, what exactly is a dollar as money? Well, it's a Federal Reserve note. Because as I mentioned in the Titanic episode, the Federal Reserve is a private entity. It's neither federal nor does it hold any reserves. And this entity creates our money. And so how is it money? How is a Federal Reserve note actual money? Well, it's because we say it is. <laughs> it's because it's because we say it's money. And that's really all that is keeping it valuable. See, our money is based on the full faith and credit of the United States. Now, if we screw up that faith, if we screw up that credit, and that's what it's based on, well, then that's problems for the dollar. So if we start doing shady things like taking other countries' money and they decide, yeah, we're not going to use this thing anymore because our faith and our credit with the United States is no good anymore. So uh, when the world uses our money, we're in the money and we're living large, baby. We're doing great. But when they stop using it, it's not going to be that good for us. So we have a lot of debt. We have a ton of debt out there. And um, what does she say in uh, Ms. Ms. Roman's video? Uh, she says that, uh, I think she says $31.6 is the debt ceiling we're at right now or, or whatever. Uh, we'll call it, we'll call it $32 trillion. What's a, what's a couple of hundred billion? Um, anyway, uh, how that just keeps on increasing. And the next time they, they, um, up the debt limit because they most certainly will. The next time they, they up this debt limit, it's going to get even higher and higher and higher. But how does that money actually increase? How do you just go, uh, uh, and, and create more dollars in the past? They used to spin up the printing presses and just, create more dollars, more paper money and coins would roll off the assembly line. But the way it's done today, the way the Fed creates more money is they buy treasury bonds. So we have this private entity that loans us our money. And how do they justify loaning us more money? Well, they buy treasury bonds. So, so essentially the, um, the country that they have monopolized the money of, well, they just buy debt from that same country. So it's it's kind of just like a, excuse the language, it's kind of just a uh, monetized circle jerk. So uh, they're just trading debt instruments, so to speak. And so there's nothing backing it anymore. When we were taking off, taking off the gold standard, I believe it was 1972, 
Before that time, we actually had gold in reserves. We had these giant gold bars in in Fort Knox and wherever else. And this, this real tangible, valuable thing represented our money. All the dollars out there are backed by this physical thing. And you can take that to the bank. <laughs> Literally, you you actually were able to take your money, your paper money, to a, to a bank, to uh, what they referred to as the gold window, and you were able to actually exchange your paper money for gold. <clears throat> That's not the case anymore. That is definitely not the case anymore. If you look at a one-ounce gold coin, this is from the U.S. Mint. If you look at a one-ounce gold coin, and last time I checked, gold just broke another all-time high record. I believe it reached $2,081 or something like that. So an ounce of gold, one ounce of gold right now is valued at $2,000. But the face value of that one ounce coin from the government, it's worth 50 bucks. That, that face value, that redeemable value right now in the eyes of the government is $50, but the gold is worth over $2,000. So there's a massive discrepancy there, right? And nobody in their right mind would use that coin uh, for $50, but that is really all it's worth in the eyes of our Federal Reserve System. So as you can see, what we have is a massive Ponzi scheme on many levels. We have a lot of accounting tricks happening, which are making it seem like our money is valuable. You know, the Fed issues the money and all they did to issue it was to buy treasury bonds. And yeah, there's some other there's some other owners of our debt. Some foreign governments own our debt. In fact, you can own our debt. You too can own some of our um, <laughs> our debt. You can buy treasury bonds if you want. You can just go to treasury.gov and buy your own treasury bonds. So, so anyway, what I'm trying to say is this whole thing is a sleight of hand trick our money is basically a Ponzi scheme. In fact, it's worse than a Ponzi scheme because the people in the Ponzi scheme are uh, presumably, you know, taking profits as they're involved in it. The problem is the Ponzi scheme eventually collapses and that seems to be happening now. I don't know if it's going to be 30 days or six months or two years or five years, but eventually this system is coming down and it's going to come down by going way up. It's going to come down with hyperinflation. And this has happened a bunch of times before. Hyperinflation is a symptom of governments creating their own money. And the reason it's so insidious the reason this thing is so terrible is because when a government actually gets control of the money and is able to print as much money as it needs, nobody can resist that temptation. It's it's simply impossible to resist the temptation of unlimited money. And so that's what we've done. We've created a system that is going to come to an end. Now, it's possible that we could uh, stave off a, you know, giant cataclysmic collapse with some other system coming in. But we should be prepared because the system that we have in place right now, no matter what, it cannot sustain. Because when we are paying money on our money, 
it naturally increases and it increases and increases and increases and it goes exponential because it can't go any other direction. So anyway, get prepared, get prepared, do something about it because uh, there's no gold, there's no reserves, there's nothing backing it except for the full faith and credit in the U.S. And let me tell you, my faith is waning. (laughs) My faith is a waning. So what can we do about it? There are a couple things you can do about it. I've heard some uh, some pretty good solutions. One of the best solutions that I heard recently was that you should have multiple bank accounts. For one, the FDIC only uh, insures your money in a bank up to $250,000. So certainly if you're holding more than $250,000 in a bank, Yeah, have multiple bank accounts. But the other reason to have multiple bank accounts is so that you can keep your money uh, mobile, let's say. And so open up a couple of bank accounts with large banks, with small banks, and do some transfers. Get that transfer mechanism set up so that if there is a collapse happening, you can immediately uh, initiate a transfer. Don't wait until the day when uh, the bank is collapsing to try and set up a uh, another bank account to get a transfer initiated. It's not going to happen. So if you want to try and participate in the shell game in a meaningful way, you're going to need multiple bank accounts. But those bank accounts are all still in dollars. So there's a couple of other things you can do. You can get tangible assets. Gold and silver is a good way to do that. I do like precious metals, but you got to have them. You got to own them because if they're not in your possession, then they're probably just some derivative investment product, which is tied to the entire financial system at large anyway. So I do like gold and silver. And if you listen to any of these, say conservative talk show hosts, they're always selling some gold and silver service these days. If you call them, they can advise you. And, um, Quite simply, what they're doing is they are making a lot of money on on that advisement. And I've heard that some of these are scams because they will sell you numismatic coins or numismatic metals. And numismatic means collectible. So there is a perceived value beyond that of just the value of the metal itself, which is not really a great way to plan for an economic collapse, if you ask me. So this is not investment advice, but, and uh, talk to your investment advisor, strategist, whatever, but, and hear me out on this, the best way to get precious metals is to pay the least amount for them. I know, I know, it's a crazy strategy, right? (laughs) But that's what you can do. I mean, if you want precious metals, there are plenty of online outlets, uh, that are that are reputable. Some of the big ones are like SD Bullion and Ampex and these other big bullion suppliers you can find online. You can go to your local coin shops and buy them. And the best way to do it is just to look at the spot price, find out what that is. Because every day, like the stock market, the price of gold and silver gets updated. So you can see what the price is that day. And you're going to pay more than that But what you try to do is get as close to that as you can. It's pretty easy. 
It's pretty easy. And so that's one way to do it. You can buy precious metals. And um, unless you're investing hundreds of thousands of dollars, I wouldn't call one of those companies. I wouldn't use an advisor. I would just buy it myself. And, um, you know, real estate is probably a, a good place to put some money. And um, anything that's tangible, anything that's real, anything that is not just based on full faith and credit would be good. You could also buy treasury bonds, like I mentioned. You can just go right there to treasury.gov and and buy your own treasury bonds in case you want to participate in that. So anyway, uh, yeah, uh, not okay. Okay. All right. 42 minutes. Not too bad. I hope this was informative. I hope that this gave you some idea of our banking and money system so that maybe you can take this to the next level. Maybe you can look at it and um, and see when you read these headlines that maybe you're not getting the full story and that maybe this uh, banking collapse is actually a symptom of a larger thing. Maybe this is actually a sovereign debt collapse or this is actually a collapse of the dollars that are in these banks. So anyway, I hope this was helpful to you. Don't panic. (laughs) Don't burn any systems down. Just try to prepare because it is coming. Don't know when, but it's definitely coming. So get prepared and uh, and be ready for it. And until next time, uh, get rich or die trying. on the market at the butcher for a pound couldn't buy a pork chop when i laid my money down cause time's getting tougher than tough things get rougher than rough well i make a lot of money but i just keep spending the stuff I'll have to try Undertaker's got a union And it costs too much to die Cause time's getting tougher Things getting rougher Well I make a lot of money But I just keep spending the stuff Politicians telling folks To cut down on the meat Why don't they cut the prices And let all the people eat Cause time's getting tougher than tough And things getting rougher than rough
Well, I make a lot of money, but I just keep spending the stuff. 